podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. The Two-Footed Podcast is brought to you by EPLindex.com and our presenting sponsor, Liberty Shield. Liberty Shield is a VPN provider. A virtual privacy network allows you to go online, change your location, access things you're geo-blocked from while keeping your data safe. So, as an example, if you are a UK expat and want access to BBC iPlayer to watch Match of the Day or ITV Hub or all four, but you get that message that says this content is not available in your location, a Liberty Shield VPN gets you around that block, allows you to watch whatever you want on those services while also keeping your data safe. And it goes further than that. It allows you to open up Netflix's entire library by just changing your IP address. Liberty Shield is the number one rated VPN provider on Trustpilot with five-star ratings across the board. So go to libertyshield.com right now, use the code EPL25, and get either the hardware package or the software package. The hardware package is a router that you plug into your existing router, And any item you want to change the IP address on, be it your phone or your television, you connect that to the new Liberty Shield router. All other items can remain connected to your existing router. There's also a software package, which is instantly downloadable to your device, and you can get using straight away. Again, libertyshield.com, EPL25 for 25% off at checkout. We're also brought to you by Home of Hopcroft, a giftware and homework company located in Scotland, but shipping worldwide. Check out homeofhopcroft.co.uk and do check out the EPL Index and Anfield Index shops, which you'll find on Etsy. Use the codes EPL10 or RED10 for 10% off at checkout. And lastly, do remember to check out a tad predictable hosted by Tadiwa. That podcast is on this feed before every Premier League match week. And then the EPL Roundtable, hosted by Kevin DeVries, on its own EPL Roundtable feed. So just search EPL Roundtable in your podcast device. And that's out after every match week. Now, on with the show. What's good, boys and girls? Two-footed podcast. Today is Wednesday. It is the 25th of October. I hope you're all well and preparing for Halloween because tis the season. Uh, It is Wednesday, which means it is Nostalgia Day. But before we get into that, we're going to have a look at the Champions League. We had games last night. We have games tonight. So last night, Galatasaray won. Bayern Munich 3. Bayern went one up through Kingsley Coleman. Galatasaray missed two great, great chances. Now, one of them, Sven Ulrich, made an excellent save. The second, Arthur Coglu, just blew an unbelievable chance. But Mario Cardi did make it 1-1 from the penalty spot on 30 minutes. Galatasaray missed another couple of chances. Bayern missed a couple of chances. Then Harry Kane made it 2-1 to Bayern on 73. And then Kane fed Jamal Musiala to make it 3-1 
on 79. Good win for Bayern, but not the most convincing win they'll have this season. Galatasaray, I think, deserved a draw on the night. Inter Milan 2, RB Salzburg 1. Alexis Sanchez opened the scoring. Oscar Glosch made it 1-1 on 57. And Hakan Chalanoglu with a penalty on 64, giving Inter a narrow win, but probably on balance of play a deserved win. Union Berlin 0, Napoli 1, Raspadori with the only goal of the game from Napoli's only shot on target in the game on 65. Sevilla 1, Arsenal 2. Gabriel Martinelli opens the scoring on the stroke of halftime. It's brilliant work from Gabriel Jesus. Brilliant work. Arsenal had been pinned back a little bit. Sevilla had started to put a lot of pressure on. Arsenal had been the better team, had missed a couple of good chances, but Sevilla had finally gotten a good foothold in the game and were starting to mount some pressure, and Arsenal were defending a set piece. Ball is cleared. Jesus takes it down. Good first touch. The second touch is outrageous, sends two defenders the wrong way. It's a very simple ball into space. Sevilla have completely abandoned ship defensively. And Martinelli runs on and runs and runs and runs around the goalkeeper and scores. On 53 minutes, Jesus makes it two. It's a good goal. It's shocking defending. Why defenders are backing off him like that into their own penalty area and in their own penalty area, I have no idea. But it's a good finish. And it is 2-0 to Arsenal. Goodelge made it 2-1 on 58 with a good header after Rakitic's corner. Um, A solid win for Arsenal. They weren't spectacular, but all they needed was the win, and they got that. Braga won Real Madrid 2. Rodrigo scored the opener. Jude Bellingham made it 2-0. Alvaro Jallo pulled one back for Braga, who had their moments, and I thought they were actually going to salvage a draw late on in that one, but it wasn't to be. Lenz won, PSV Eindhoven won. Johan Bakayoko scored an outstanding goal for PSV. Al Yawahi scored for Lenz, continuing his impressive start of the season. Benfica nil, Real Sociedad won. Bryce Mendes with the only goal of the game. Benfica were dreadful. Dreadful in that game. Speaking of dreadful... Manchester United won Copenhagen nil. Um, in no way were United the better team in this game. A draw would have absolutely been a fair result. Harry Maguire scored the only goal of the game on 72 minutes with a stooping header. Both sides had some decent chances. Both keepers made some good saves. Camille Grabara in the Copenhagen net and obviously Onana in the United net, and in the last seconds of the game, Scott McTominay, who gave away a penalty at the weekend, gave away a penalty here in mindless fashion. I don't really understand why Jordan Larson was the chosen penalty taker. Uh, Maybe he has a good track record but he looked so nervous as he stepped up. And Onana made a good save. It's not a good penalty, 
it's exactly where you would want it if you're a goalkeeper. The right height, the right speed. But Onana does well. And United win 1-0. And what that leaves us with is Bayern top of Group A, Galatasaray second on four points, United third on three points, and Copenhagen bottom on one. But Copenhagen will feel like they can get something from the United game in their home stadium. In Group B, Arsenal are top six points, then Lens on five, Sevilla and PSV on two points. Group C, we have Real Madrid top with nine, Napoli second with six, then Braga and then Berlin. In Group D, it's pretty much going to be a wrap. It is Real Sociedad and Inter Milan both with seven points, Salzburg with three points, and Benfica with no points. Tonight, then, we have eight more games, obviously. In the early kickoffs, Barcelona against Shakhtar Donetsk. You'd expect Barca to win that. At home, Shakhtar are they're a shell of what they used to be. Um, so you'd expect Barca to win. Feyenoord against Lazio, though, I think should be a decent game. Two managers that want to play an attractive brand of football in, in Arnie Slot and, and Sarri. I think the big ones are the... 8pm games in the same group. You get Newcastle against Dortmund at St. James's. I think that's going to be a belter. Dortmund have taken the most domestic league points of any club in the top five leagues in the year 2023. And yet, and yet, finished second in the Bundesliga last season and currently sit fourth in the Bundesliga this season. Now, they're only two points off top, admittedly, but still. Those should both be really good games. I'm sorry, that should be a really good game. The other game in that group is PSG against Milan. I'm looking forward to that one. I think that'll be good. We've also got Red Bull Leipzig, or RB Leipzig, Racing Ball Sport, because we couldn't possibly suggest that they're just a marketing vehicle for Red Bull, uh, against Red Star Belgrade. Young Boys against Manchester City. Should be a comfortable City win. Celtic against Atletico Madrid. Brendan Rodgers against Diego Simeone. Yeah, that can only end one way. And then Antwerp against Porto. So for me, the early kickoff to watch is probably Feyenoord Lazio, unless you just want to watch Barcelona because it's Barcelona. But then you've got good choices in the 8pm. You've got... Newcastle, Dortmund, you've got PSG, Milan, or you've got Celtic, Atletico Madrid. And speaking of Celtic versus Atletico Madrid, the Green Brigade Brigade have announced that they will distribute Palestinian flags at Celtic Park despite the move being condemned by the club. The club have been completely tone deaf on this. The club came out with a statement with a statement that was completely at odds with with what Celtic football club is all about. Now I get I get that Lyle Abada is Israeli. I get that. And I get that the club are being supportive of him and they should be supportive of him. But Celtic represent something 
and stand for something that means that their place in this is on the side of the Palestinians. The Green Brigade are, I think, the best supporters group anywhere in in Britain. They're genuinely so passionate and so important in the community. Now, if we go back to 2016, the Green Brigade broke out the Palestinian flags when Celtic took on uh, Hapoel Beersheba. The club were fined. The Green Brigade matched the fine and gave it to charity. In 2021, when did the Queen pass away? 2022. The Queen passed away and uh, the Green Brigade did have an offensive anti-monarchy banner. And that was that. Um, And the club were fined again. But they stand against the monarchy. They stand against any type of... occupation, people behaving as if they're better than other people, rulership, monarchy, they stand against all of that. Celtic as a club stands against all of that and certainly has historically. But the the club statement was, was really poor. The club statement was really poor. And I, I thought the Green Brigade statement was really strong the way they came out and made their message clear. This is not a protest against Jewish people at all. This is a protest against oppression, against genocide, against apartheid. The Green Brigade does all of us proud. Um, And for that reason... I'll be watching the Celtic game. Uh, right, that is what we have tonight. So plenty to look forward to. It is Nostalgia Day. So um, following on from the 98 World Cup and the 2000 World Cup, we're going to do, sorry, the 2000 European Championships. Today, we are going to do the 2002 World Cup in Japan and South Korea or Korea and Japan, as it was officially titled. This is not a World Cup I have hugely fond memories of, for a couple of reasons. Now, to get to the point where South Korea and Japan were awarded this World Cup, there was a lot of toing and froing. There was a lot of political manoeuvring. There was a lot of very public arguing among the powers that be in football, you had FIFA backing the Japanese bid or the president of FIFA backing the Japanese bid. You had uh, Lennart Johansson, who was the head of UEFA, just undermining him completely and pushing for a co-hosting event. You had Mexico also in the mix wanting to host this event. So initially there was three bids, Korea, South Korea, Japan and Mexico. And the South Korean bid was the third one made. And at the time, people just assumed it was a political move 
by the South Koreans, kind of a shot across the bow of the Japanese. Like, we're going to make sure this costs you more than you want to spend on it. But in the end, they came together. In the end, they put on, in terms of how they hosted the competition, a very, very good competition. In terms of the fan experience, in terms of how easy it was for fans to get from one place to another, in terms of the stadiums themselves, the quality of football is where I would take issue with this tournament. And also how annoying it was that the games were on like 8 a.m. our time. Now, look, it is what it is. That's just how how time works, you know. But it was just it was it was frustrating. It's very difficult to get up and try and watch a game of football that early in the morning, especially when you've got work that day. And I I have always had great sympathy with people in the USA who get up at stupid o'clock in the morning to watch Premier League games or or games in other other European leagues. Uh, especially people who are on the West Coast of America or Canada. I I think it's incredibly impressive that people are willing to get up at stupid o'clock to watch games of football. I myself lived in Toronto, which was five hours ahead of, five hours behind the UK rather, but the games were were there for at an acceptable time if they were the 3 p.m. or the, the late kickoffs. The 12.30s were a little bit annoying. They were, you know, a 7.30 start. But when you think of the people on the West Coast, they're getting up at 4.30 to watch those games. Or they're getting up at 4 to watch them at 4.30. I also got the flip side of it when I lived in Australia. And it was that that sort of softened me towards the fact that I'd been put out by this World Cup because then I started to think about like the millions and millions of Asian Premier League fans who have to watch games in the middle of the night, you know? Like living in Perth, we were eight hours ahead of the UK. So a 3 p.m. kickoff was 11 p.m. But if it was a midweek game, it was disgusting. You were watching it at four in the morning. Uh, We started doing the Anfield Index podcast at that time. And I used to have to record it at four in the morning because the lads would want to record it at eight in the evening in the UK. So I didn't really enjoy that so much. Didn't enjoy it all that much at all. But it could have been worse. I could have been living on the east coast of Australia where, you know, there were two and three hours ahead depending on the uh, the clocks going forward or back, which daylight savings or whatever you want to call it. Um, the Western Australians don't bother with it. They decided that while the rest of the country does change their clocks twice a year, they just weren't going to bother because why, why would you? <laughs> it's nonsense. Um, anyway, moving on from that to this World Cup. So, Uh, We have 32 teams in this World Cup. From Asia, we have China, we have Saudi Arabia, and we have the co-hosts, Japan 
and South Korea. From Africa, we have Cameroon, we have Nigeria, we have Senegal, we have South Africa, we have Tunisia. We have nobody from the Oceania. From the CONCACAF region, we get Costa Rica, Mexico, and the USA. From South America, there's Argentina, Brazil, Ecuador, Paraguay, and Uruguay. And then from Europe, it's Belgium, Croatia, Denmark, England, France, the reigning holders. Germany, Italy, Poland, Portugal, the Republic of Ireland, Russia, Slovenia, Spain, Sweden, and Turkey. In all, there were 20 stadiums used for this competition. 10 in each country. And they're all spectacular. For one reason or another. Either the stadium itself or the location of the stadium. The surroundings of the stadium. Every one of them was absolutely fitting to host such an event. The only knock I would have on the stadiums is how many of them had running tracks, which for me always lessens a stadium. Now, it was more the Japanese, who I think had four stadiums. No, five stadiums with running tracks. Five stadiums at running tracks is just, it's a little bit too much for me. Fans are too far away and it doesn't create a good atmosphere. But, again, all the stadiums, visually, architecturally, surroundings-wise, every one of them ticked a good box and was a strong candidate for, for this competition. So, fair enough. We'll have a look at the squads. Uh, we'll just breeze through some of these. The Danes, standout players, I mean... Thomas Gravelson stands out for many, many reasons. Um, a, a psychotic human being. Uh, Jesper Gronkjaer, John Dahl Thomason, Peter Lovenkrantz, Dennis Romadol, Martin Larson. A decent squad. The French reigning World Cup champions. Ulrich Ramey as the backup goalkeeper. That's one big change. He hadn't been in the squad four years earlier, or the Euro squad a few years earlier. But you've got Candela, you've got Lazarzu, you've got Vieira, who's grown into a much bigger role and at this point is an established world-class player at 25 years of age, the peak of his powers. Yuri Jorkaev is, is there. At this point, he's at Bolton. He's past his best, but he's still a genius. Claude Makaleli, Marcel Desailly, a young, very young Gibral Cisse, Zinedine Zidane, the best player in the world at this point. Thierry Henry has established himself by now as the best player in England. Lillian Thuram, Fabian Barthez, Emmanuel Petit, Frank Leboeuf, David Trezeguet. It's a good squad. It's a really good squad. The Senegalese, a squad that everybody would come to know and a bunch of players that would become household names for one reason or another. El Hadj Juff, one of the most exciting players in France at this point, and seen as a, 
as a big, big talent. Salif Jao, powerful box-to-box midfielder. Papa Booba Diouf, the man with the best nickname in the history of football. The wardrobe. The only person in sport with potentially a better nickname is Bang Bang George Niang. Because Bang Bang George Niang is funny, but his nickname is The Minivan. The Minivan George Niang. And why? Because he's built like a minivan. (laughs) The wardrobe... The wardrobe is great, though. Uh, Uruguay. Paolo Montero is the... Montero, rather, is the most notable name. He is at Juve at this point. He is at the peak of his hacking powers. This is not, by any stretch, a strong uh, Uruguayan squad. But we do have two standout names in attack. We have Diego Forlan, who at this point... Not so much, but what obviously be go, go on to become a great player. And then there's Alvaro Recoba, one of my favorite players in the late 90s and early 2000s. One of the best free kick takers I've ever seen. One of the most gifted long range shooters I've ever seen. An incredible passer of the ball. Injury prone, a little bit lazy. Not necessarily all that bothered about being a great player. Just sort of got by on his talent. Uh, He was recently appointed manager of Nacional. And I would hope that he puts a bit more effort into his managerial career than he did into his playing career. Um, But he is... If you go on YouTube and you want to watch like the best goal compilations, his will be right up there with pretty much anybody. If you watch his like 15 best goals or whatever number someone's put together, like it will stand against pretty much anybody because he did score a whole heap of spectacular goals. He was incredibly talented as a passer, as a goal scorer, but it just, it never really clicked for him consistently. Like he was at Inter for the best part of 10 years. And yet this, there's only really a handful of seasons where you went, oh, he was really good that year. But there's no genuine wow season. And there should have been wow seasons with him. He was that good. His spell on loan at Venezia when he got 11 goals and 9 assists in 19 games, that's probably the best run of his career. Moving on to Paraguay, Jose Luis Chilever, magnificent. Francisco Arce was a quality defender. Um, Pedro Sarabia was decent. Ruben Acuna was decent. Roque Santa Cruz, a young Roque Santa Cruz at this point of Bayern Munich, would have gone on to play for Blackburn, Manchester City, Malaga, Real Betis, Cruz Azul, uh, Olympia in Paraguay and Libertad. Uh, Libertad, rather. He he had all the talent, just... He never quite got it all to work for himself. Bit of a shame. Uh, anyone else in that squad that's jumping out? No. Uh, Slovenia, again... Zlatko Zdavic is the the star turn here. 
there's nobody else in that squad that's really standing out to me. But the most notable thing about Zahovic is that he was kicked off the squad after the first game and played no further part. Uh, moving on to South Africa, Quinton Fortune was a very well-known name playing for Manchester United. Benny McCarthy was a very, very good striker at Porto at this point. And Lucas Radaby, who was towards the end of his career, still a very good defender, well-known to, to everybody. But the big talent in this squad that we didn't know at the time would become more prevalent afterwards was a young player who'd moved to Ajax the year before from Ajax of Cape Town. Ajax had set up their own club in South Africa as a way to kind of, you know, cut the cream off the milk, I suppose. Make sure they were getting the best talents from the region. This was part of what they had planned to do globally. There was plans for 10 or 12 of these clubs, and for whatever reason, they just never did it. But this was long before Red Bull or any of those were doing similar. Um, They found him, they brought him over, and he would become a star with them. Now, his career didn't go as expected. He never quite reached his potential. Played for Dortmund, played for Everton, played for Spurs. Was quite good for Everton, to be fair. And then went back to Everton after not working out at Spurs and finished off his career at Sunderland. Stephen Pienaar was a very, very fun player to watch. Uh, the Spanish squad, you've got Iker Casilla, you've got uh, a young... Sorry, I've lost the run of myself there. Uh, a young Iker Casillas, who's 21 at this point, has 13 caps, would go on to win 167 for the nation, would play a huge role in the success that would come six, eight, and ten years later. But at that point, he was just a very talented young goalkeeper. Uh, you've got Ivan Helguera. You've got Carlos Puyol. At that point, only eight caps would obviously go on and have a great career with the national team. You have Fernando Hierro. This was to be his last World Cup. He would retire from international duty after this World Cup. He was He's the best Spanish defender of all time. Ruben Baraka. Fernando Morientes, Diego Tristan, Raul, of course, Albert Luque, Geiske Mendieta, Juan Carlos Valeron, talked about them last week. You've got a young Xavi, only three caps before this tournament, Luis Enrique, and you've got Joaquin. We're going to pause on Joaquin. Came through the academy at Real Betis and looked like he was going to be the next true superstar winger. He just had all the talent. He was lightning quick. He was big and strong, could bully a fullback, could beat a fullback any way he wanted. At this time, the reason a lot of people have started paying attention to Real Betis is because in 1998, they had broke the world transfer record to sign Danielson from Sao Paulo. And it didn't go very well. But he did have some spells where he started to put it all together and then it just wouldn't quite work out for him. But people were watching to see if Danielson would show the potential that everybody believed he had. And on the other wing, 
this kid appeared and stole the show and for many years was linked with Liverpool, would eventually move to Valencia in 2006, would continue to be linked to Liverpool, would move to Malaga in 2011 when Malaga thought they had loads of money and spent loads of money and then it turned out they didn't have loads of money. He would have two years with Fiorentina and he would go back to Real Betis where he would continue to play until this past season. At the age of 41, just before his 42nd birthday, he finally retired. An amazing player who somehow only won 57 caps and somehow fell out of favour just before the start of Spain's great great run. He wins 51 caps in basically a five-year, six-year span. 2002, 3, 4, 5, 6, and 7. He's 7 to 9 caps every year. And then Spain get great and he's not involved. Now, part of that obviously was... Part of that was he made some comments about Luis Aragones that didn't sit well with Aragones. And... The other part of it was he was a winger and Spain kind of moved away from playing with wingers. But I I just can't accept that there wasn't times when he should have been in the squad, especially under Del Bosch. When Del Bosch took over, the one flaw in his time, and look, he won a, a World Cup and a European Championship, so he can do what he wants. But I just wish he'd, he'd brought Joaquin back. Um. You look at his his career, and he's just a machine. 39 games, 35 games, 45, 39, 47, 51. That's at Betis. Goes to Valencia, 46, 49, 40, 45, 38. Had some injury problems the first year with Malaga, only played 25, then played 45 the next year. Went to Fiorentina, 37, 34 comes back to Betis. Most people think he's got two to three years left and then he's going to retire. He plays eight years, 32, 39, 36, 43, 36, 10, 37, and 30. He's a machine, an absolute machine. Never quite got the goal side of it quite right. Early in his Betis career, the the second year they were in La Liga, his third year in the team, he scores 12 goals, nine in the league. The following year, he gets eight in the league, nine in all competitions. And you start to think, right, he's going to be 10 goals a year, every year here. And he wouldn't manage 10 goals a season from when he did it with 12 in 2003. The next time he would score 10 goals a season was 1920, he got 10 goals. Only two seasons of double figures in his career. Only one season of nine, one season of eight, one season of seven. Sorry, three seasons of seven. Three seasons of seven. Other than that, it's six and below. That's the one knock on him. Not enough goal return for the positions he got himself into because he was so intelligent off the ball. Won two Copa del Rey's 
with Real Betis, won in 0405, won in 2122. Also won the same competition with Valencia in 0708. Was picked as a reserve for the All Star team for this World Cup we're about to talk about. Was voted La Liga Breakthrough Player of the Year in that same year. And that's it. And for a player of his talent, he should have won a lot more. But he shunned the big clubs, he turned them down. He had his opportunities to go to bigger clubs. He could have gone to Manchester United. He turned them down. When United sold Beckham, they were buying Ronaldo to replace Giggs on the left and they wanted Joaquin to play on the right. When they signed Nani some years later, that was only after Joaquin turned them down again. Arsenal tried to sign him. Turned them down. Liverpool tried relentlessly. Turned them down. Didn't really want to leave Spain. Went to Italy for two years. Didn't really like it all that much. Turned down Real Madrid multiple times. Didn't want to play for the the big establishment clubs. Wanted to be the underdog. Had a great career. Absolutely no question. But should should have accomplished more. Um... Brazil, Cafu, Lucio, Edmilson, Roberto Carlos, Gilberto Silva, Ronaldo, Rivaldo, Ronaldinho. What a front three. What a ludicrous front three. Uh, you've got Dida, Cleberson, Danielson, Van Peta, another wasted talent. Janinho uh, Palista, known for... His time mostly at Middlesbrough, obviously. Um, Adilson, Rogerio Sene, who's a very, very underrated goalkeeper historically. Very, very underrated goalkeeper historically. And a great goal-scoring goalkeeper. And you've got a very young Kaka, who's still with Sao Paulo at that point. Now, the noticeable absentee from that squad is Emerson, who at that point had established himself as one of the best midfielders in Europe. He was to be the captain of Brazil in that competition. And in training before the tournament, he was messing around, went in goal and hurt his shoulder and ended up missing the competition. The armband passed to Cafu and we know what happened after that, but we'll get into it. Uh, China are there. Couldn't tell you who any of these players are. Uh, Sun Jihai, I, d- I do remember him. He played for City. Uh, that's it. Uh, Costa Rica, Paolo Wanchop, uh, probably Derby County legend would be the best way to describe him, but did play for West Ham and Manchester City as well. He was always fun to watch. Never looked like he had uh, full control of his own feet, but very, very fun. Um Nobody else is standing out for me in that squad. The Turkish squad, you've got Rusty Rekbar. You've got Hakan Suker. You've got uh, Baz Turk. Muzi Izzet. Nihat, player I very, very much liked. Thought he was always a, a very fun watch. And his partnership at uh, Real Sociedad with Darko Kovacevic was, was outstanding. Um, Hakan Unsal from Blackburn. Emre, who was at Inter Milan at the time, would come to England, play with 
Newcastle um, and go on then to Fenerbahce, Atletico Madrid, Fenerbahce, Istanbul, Besiktas, and back to Fenerbahce before retiring at the age of 39. Uh, probably best remembered in England for being a little bit racist. Um, that's probably the best memory of him in England. And by best, of course, I do mean worst. Uh, for Poland, you've got Jersey, du- Jersey Dudek, Jersey Dudek. Um, who else is in this squad that's notable? That's kind of it, to be completely honest. Jacek Zielinski, I suppose, was a decent defender, but that's kind of it. For Portugal, you've got Vitor Bahia. You've got uh, George Costa, Abel Xavier, Fernando Couto. You've got Paulo Sosa, Luis Figo, Jair Pinto, Paleta, Rui Costa, Sergio Conceição, Hugo Viana. Hugo Viana is one of those should have been so much better than what he became type of players. After this World Cup, he moved to Newcastle and it was just too early. They paid a big a big fee for him, but it was far too early. He wasn't ready to leave. Sporting. So much talent. So much talent, but just never quite got it right. Never never reached his potential. What he has done very well, though, is work as a director of football, and he is currently the director of football with Sporting now. Um, And he's played a, a key role in rebuilding them after the situation where there was the attack on the players by the fans at the training ground, he was vital in creating the team with Ruben Amram that won the league title. So that is where his intelligence as a player is starting to come to real fruition. Um, after Portugal then... Sec. We have South Korea... Most noticeable thing about them, they're managed by Gus Hiddink, obviously a, a legendary coach. I don't remember any of their players. The United States, Brad Friedel, Greg Berhalter, currently the coach, the head coach of the US men's national team, an awful coach, in my view. Um, Joe Max Moore, Claudio Reyna, Demarcus Beasley. I always quite liked Demarcus Beasley. He never lived up to his potential either but did have a decent career. Spent some time at Rangers. Won a lot of caps. 126 caps. Uh, Casey Keller, legendary goalkeeper, Tony Miola. Um, When we were kids, uh, the Mega Drive, the Mega Drive and the Nintendo, then the Super Nintendo, were the, the big gaming consoles and on the mega drive which was always the cooler one or at least we thought it was because that's what we had uh sensible soccer was the game and i remember the cullen brothers john paul who we lost a few years ago and ricky uh they had sensible soccer and i remember jp whenever he would you could create your own team and you could rename the players basically that's what you could do. You could rename the players to make them whatever you want. And I remember 
uh, JP would always, if he was picking like a global dream team, he would always have Tony Miola as the goalkeeper. And I, I don't know why. He never fully explained to me why. Miola was a really good goalkeeper. But, I mean, they were better. But that's why Tony Miola will always be be a good one in my book because it always reminds me of JP. Um, Kobe Jones, quite like him. He won a, a crap ton of caps as well. Uh, 164 caps. Had a brief spell at Coventry. Uh, Brian McBride, Landon Donovan, a young Landon Donovan. And my man, Eddie Pope. Uh, Cameroon, you've got Jeremy, you've got a young Samuel Eto, you've got Loren, you've got Mark Vivian Foe, another sad tale. Eric Jemba Jemba, so bad they named him twice, as he was known when he came to England. Uh, Joseph Je- Desiree Job, decent centre forward. Carlos Camini, who would go on to obviously become a, a, a great goalkeeper. Uh, for Cameroon at this point he's a youngster with one cap uh, the Germans then Oliver Kahn got Frank Bauman Karsten Ramelow, Christian Ziga Didi Hamann Lars Ricken who by this point should have been should have been the star of the team and in some ways he was but that kind of tells you why they were more of a grinding team than an exciting team because he wasn't great. Uh, he, he had so much talent, so much potential. Everybody remembers his goal in that European Cup final, but he just never never managed to reach his potential or even close to it. Uh, Miroslav Klose, Michael Balak, definitely their best player at this point. Sebastian Kiel will go on to have a great career with Dortmund. Jens Jeremies, Marco Boda passed his best at this point. Uh, Bernd Schneider, always a decent player. Oliver Bierhoff's well passed his best. A young Christoph Meltzer, uh, Met- Metzelder, and Torsten Frings. Um, and Hans-Jörg Bucht is the other goalkeeper. Um, yeah, yeah. The Republic of Ireland... This pains me. This pains me. Shea given a goal. Pretty good. Pretty good. Steve Finnan and Ian Hart, two solid fullbacks. Kenny Cunningham and Steve Staunton, two fullbacks who'd converted the centre back and played like it. And then the issue, number six. Roy Keane. And there's no real point in me going into why he left the squad. It's it's well documented. If you want to go on Wikipedia and look up Saipan incident or just Google why Roy Keane left the 2002 World Cup. But it completely torpedoed our World Cup. We went in here with so much hope because we had a good team, solid not spectacular, but solid. Um, with some really exciting players. Probably the two most exciting young players we'd had in a while. Uh, you've got Jason McAteer. You've got Matt Holland. And you've got Damien Duff, who's 
really making a name for himself at Blackburn. And you've got Robbie Keane. And Robbie Keane, of course, is on his fourth boyhood club by this stage. Robbie Keane had been at Crumlin in Dublin, Crumlin United, had gone to Wolves, spent a year in their academy, then spent two years in their first team, earned a move to Coventry, did well, went to Inter Inter Milan in what was quite a shock, um, didn't do so well, got loaned back to Leeds, did really well on a loan, didn't do so well on a permanent deal, but would have moved to Spurs, and it's it, it's Spurs where he would become sort of the Robbie Keane everybody remembers, and that came after this World Cup, had that failed spell at Liverpool, obviously, did well on a loan at Celtic, um, did very well with LA Galaxy for a long time, to his credit, and is currently manager of Maccabee Tel Aviv. Um, Kevin Kilban, Mark Kinsella, David Conley, Gary Breen, he was crap. Um... He wasn't. That's not fair. He wasn't crap. He's a terrible pundit, though. He was a solid enough defender, but he was always error prone. Always error prone. It's good for like Coventry, that kind of level in the championship. Uh, David Dunn, no Richard Dunn. David Dunn, someone I grew up with. Richard Dunn. David Dunn is also the fellow that played with uh, Blackburn. Uh, Dean Kiley. Niall Quinn, well past his best at this point. Uh, Gary Kelly. Gary Kelly should have been in the peak of his powers, but injuries had slowed him. Clinton Morrison, Andy O'Brien, who'd go on to be a legend with Vancouver Whitecaps, and I think he's still working as a scout. Uh, Stephen Reid was a very promising young midfielder. Lee Carsley is a ball winner, and and Alan Kelly, who was uh, a very good goalkeeper in his day, but at this point, was past his best. Don't remember any of the Saudis. Argentina, you've got the great Roberto Ayala. Uh, Juan Pablo Serin, who had the maddest hair I've ever seen. Maurizio Pochettino. Matias Almeida was a really good defensive midfielder. Walter Samuel. You could make a case he was a top three centre-back in world football at this point, I think. I think by that point, that's where he was. Nesta was one. Stam was two. And I would argue Walter Samuel was three. Claudio Lopez, who I loved. Javier Zanetti, who I adore. Gabriel Badastuta. What a player. What a player. A rocket launcher for a right foot. Ariel Ortega. Juan Sebastian Verón, who's an all-time favourite of mine. You've got Diego Placente, who was a really good left-back. You've got El Cholo, Pablo Aymar, Kili Gonzalez. Kili Gonzalez was a really fun player. Kili Gonzalez could do two things on a football pitch. Knock it by a fullback, run really fast by him, and whip in across, or unleash an absolute thunder bastard off his left foot from 20 to 25 yards. Now, the issue with the Thunder Bastards is more of them ended up assaulting the crowd than went in the back of the net. But by Christ, you didn't want to get in the way of one of them. 
But when he would just focus on knocking it by that fullback and whipping across in, he was pretty unstoppable. Pretty unstoppable when he was at uh, Boca Juniors, at Saragossa, and at Valencia. Didn't really work all that well at Inter Milan. They tried to make him a wing back for a while, which was interesting. And had it happened early in his career, like if he came through now, I think that's what he'd be. He'd be a left back or a left wing back. I don't think he'd be a winger. Um, Because if you played him on the right, all he would do is come inside and shoot. He wouldn't pass the ball. Wouldn't even consider passing the ball. It's completely far, completely foreign concept to him that he might do that. Um, but yeah, he was he was really good when he played on the left. Always enjoyed watching Kelly Gonzalez. Uh Hernan Crespo, one of the best strikers I've ever seen. Uh Marcelo Gallardo, brilliant little playmaker. Claudio Kinesia, tremendous, tremendous fun. Uh still knocking about having I think this would have been his fourth World Cup. Um and Jose Shamot, who was a solid enough defender. Um, England, managed by Sven. Steven Gerrard gets injured and misses the tournament and it kind of throws his, his plan in the bin. So the plan was Beckham right side, Scholes and Hargreaves in the middle, and Gerrard left side. Nicky Butt would rotate with Hargreaves so they'd have the two ball winners. But Beckham would be right side goals to play in the middle as a as a controller. And then Gerard off the left, cutting in onto his right foot to be a, an equivalent of the box midfield that Sven had always used at, at Lazio. But when Gerard got hurt, they didn't have anyone that could do that kind of role. So they went with Trevor Sinclair. And hilariously, he wore number four, which was Gerard's squad number. Um, as opposed to just people reshuffling. But uh, that's by the by. Uh, David Seaman is in goal. He shouldn't have been in the squad at this point. At this point, David Seaman was no longer one of the best English goalkeepers and should should have been replaced by now. Um, Danny Mills, awful. But Gary Neville, I believe, was injured. Ashley Cole, had established himself by now as a tremendous left-back with Arsenal and was key to the strategy of having Gerrard on the left cutting in. Uh, You've got Rio Ferdinand, you've got Saul Campbell, David Beckham, Scholes, you've got Robbie Fowler and Michael Owen. You've got Emil Heskey. Owen and Heskey was the starting pair. Wes Brown. Wes Brown should have been the starting right-back. Nigel Martin, he was 35, but he was still excellent. He should have been the starting goalkeeper. You've got Wayne Bridge, you've got Martin Keown, Garrett Southgate, Teddy Sheringham, still valuable to the squad, I thought. Joe Cole, Darius Vassell, one of the most, I don't want to say, well, yeah, disappointing. He was disappointing. Um, Darius Vassell had loads of talent, lightning speed, and just never managed to... Never managed to do it consistently enough. Had a few good seasons with Villa. Uh, went on to play for City, obviously before City got money. Um, but never quite never quite did what you'd, you'd hoped he would do. There's a kind of a... There's a few of those type of players over a few years where they were brilliant at underage. Un, underage and you thought, oh, they're going to play for England an absolute ton. He got 22 caps for Sal, which is a you know it's a really good achievement. 
And he had a decent career, but I always felt like he should have been a lot more. And it reminded me of Julian Jolchin, who I looked up recently, and he only retired from playing three years ago. Now, he'd been playing non-league, but still, he was playing non-league from 2008 all the way through to 2020. And if you remember Julian Jolchin, he was an absolute dynamo, an absolute whiz kid for England in the underage ranks. Um, him and Fowler were in the England under-21s together and were brilliant together. And Julian Jochum came through at Leicester. And why Darius Sell reminds me of Jochum is because Jochum moved to Aston Villa in a pretty decent money kind of move. 1.5 million was a lot in 1996 for a young player. And he just never quite, it never quite clicked for him. And he'd go to Coventry and then Leeds. Uh, Then he went to Boston United, who I think were League Two at the time, or the equivalent of League Two. And he played for Darlington. But he had so much talent. He was such a skillful little player. He's a ball of energy. Never quite clicked for him either. But we've gone off topic. Uh, On to Nigeria. You've got Nwanku Kanu. You've got Taribo West. Uh, Shout out to Kieran O'Grady. You've got JJ Okocha. And uh, Vincent Hanyema. He was a great goalkeeper, but he, he always appeared to me like he was one step away from doing something mad. Like from just gifting the ball to the opposition just so they'd have something that he'd have something to do in trying to stop them. Uh, Celestine Babiaro is also in that team. Uh, the Swedes, Marcus he- Magnus Hedmund, Olaf Melberg was a good defender. Patrick Anderson was a good defender. Freddie Lundberg is probably the star of the show along with Henrik Larsson. And you've got a very young Zlatan Ibrahimovic. I'd always wonder what happened to him. Uh, Croatia, Davor Suker, Alan Boxic, Robert Yarny, all the the older players, they're aging out. Prozanecki's still in the squad. They're aging out. They're all in their 30s. Even Mario Stanic is now 30. Soldo's 34. It was like the, the end of that era of, um, of Croatian players. Uh, there's also Bosco Balaban, uh, one of a litany of strikers that Aston Villa spent a lot of money on, who was absolutely woeful for them. They spent eight million, no, sorry, six million on Bosco Balaban in two thousand and one. Gave him a big contract. He played a sum total of eight games. Scored zero goals was loaned to Dinamo Zagreb and then sold on to Club Bruges at a significant loss in 2003. So he spent one year of filler and not even a full season and, uh, yeah, did absolutely nothing. Yeah. And it's a shame because before and after, he scored goals for fun, but the Premier League was just a step too far from him. He was better suited to secondary leagues. Uh, Ecuador. Augustine Delgado. I don't remember him. Played for Southampton for three years. 
but apparently only played 11 games in the Premier League. I don't remember a, even a little bit of him. Um, there's nobody else there. The Italians, you've got Buffon, Panucci, Maldini, Cannavaro, Christian, Cristiano Zanetti, Del Piero, Gattuso, Inzaghi, Totti, Doni, Cristiano Doni, what a player. Alessandro Nesta, Montella, Zambrotta, Vieira, that's a great, great squad. Toldo was the backup goalkeeper. What a squad. What a squad. Mexico. Rafael Marquez is the standout name for me as I look down through this list. And it is on, oh, well, and obviously Jorge Campos. Who could forget Jorge and his mad, well, his madness, really, but his mad kits that he used to wear where he looked like a packet of fruit pastilles or Skittles or whatever multicolored opal fruits, starbursts, as, the, as they've been known for 20 years. They were opal fruits when I was young. And it's opal fruits they'll always be to me. Starburst, they've probably been for probably been 30 years now. Um, but yeah, he used to look like a big bag of Skittles. Uh, Rafael Marquez, what a player. What a player. You want to talk about Rolls-Royce defenders. This fella made the game look like he was playing it in slippers with a cigar dangling from the corner of his mouth. He was... So composed, so good on the ball. Absolutely magnificent defender. Brilliant 1v1. Best in a three in the middle roll, arranging everything. Could play as a holding midfielder as well, and that was easy for him. His, his anticipation, his positioning. Quite similar to Rodri in how he played that role, but he preferred to play centre-back because he liked to have more of the game in front of him. He could ping a pass here, there and everywhere. Barca had him, Puyol and Gabriel Militao at one point, and I was praying that Frank Rijkaard would go to a back three because it would have been perfect. Militao, Militao or Milito, Gabriel Melito, not Milito, Melito and Puyol as man markers and Marquez sweeping behind them. It would have just been joyous. Uh, he's the notable player from the Mexican squad. Then we've got the Belgians. We've got Mark Wilmot, Spark Gore. Daniel Van Boyten um, should have been a great defender, had all the tools, had a very good career, but never got to the level that he should have got to. Even with Bayern, when he was at his best, he never hit the level that he should have hit. Like when he was at Standard Liège and then Marseille, he looked like he was going to be the next Yapstam. Genuinely looked like he was going to be the next Yapstam. He never never got close to it. Uh, and Bowen Penze is there. His brother Emil is not. Uh, the Japanese, the most notable two names, Sinjiono. Oh, Yunichi Inamoto was in the squad as well. He was at Arsenal time. But the big name here is Nakata. Hidotoshi Nakata. You know how Zlatan is considered to have this enormous ego? This fella might actually put him to shame. And he doesn't have the career to back it up. Now, he was very good. 
Good for Roma. Very good for Parma. Decent for Fiorentina. Came to Bolton. Was okay there. 177 caps for the national team. Retired in 2006 at the age of 29 from the national team. Retired from all football, I think, at 29. For reasons he hasn't fully explained. When he retired, he'd said he'd been planning it for a while, for like a year or a year or more. Um, later on, he did say it was because he just didn't enjoy football anymore. But he was a like a marketing machine, um, like a, a proper brand when we didn't have real individual brands in football other than Beckham. He was probably the next closest to that. He was far more popular globally than even the great players like Zidane and or 9 um, He did write a book, this is where the arrogance comes in, explaining why he was one of the greatest players of all time, for those stupid enough not to realise it. Um, but a very good player nonetheless. Uh, Russia. Victor Anopko I always liked when he was at Real Oviedo. Really good sweeper, could play centre-back, could play holding midfield, but as a sweeper, he was genuinely elite. Uh, when I do, in the power rankings, I'm going to do sweepers, and he is going to be prominent on that list. Uh, Alexi Schmerten is in the team. He would obviously come to the Premier League. Alexander Mostovoy, great player. Valerie Carpin, great player. Those two at Celta Vigo together were really, really fun to watch. Um, That's probably it from that squad. Tunisia. Hatem Trebelsi, the the right back, he was good. Played for Man City for a year. Uh, Retired early, retired at 30. I think he must have had some injuries. But uh, who else do we have in this squad that's worth going into? Nobody really. And that's it. That's us. So, right, we've spent quite a lot of time on that, which is what we do. It's more to remember the players than anything else, because in terms of the results, you can actually look them up. They're, they're readily available online. But we will get into the group stage. So, Group A. Denmark, Senegal, Uruguay, France. That's how it ends. In the opening game, we get one of the biggest shocks in World Cup history, as France, the reigning champions, who've just won the Euros two years earlier, are beaten 1-0 by Senegal in their first ever World Cup match with a goal from none other than the wardrobe himself, Papa Bouba Diop. The other opening game in that group, Uruguay lose 2-1 to Denmark. John Dal Thomason gets both for Uruguay, Rodriguez, for Denmark. Rodriguez gets one for Uruguay. Uh, then Denmark won, Senegal won. John Dal Thomason scores again. And Salif Jao gets the goal for Senegal. France drawn 0-0 with Uruguay. And into the final round, France are pretty much dead and buried. They've got to win to have any small chance. And they lose 2-0 to Denmark. Ramadol and another from Jean Dal Thomason. Uh, Senegal and Uruguay draw 3 3. Fadiga and two from Papa Bubidi up. They were 3 0 up 
and cruising, and then they just took their foot off the pedal completely. Uh, Uruguay fight back, Morales, Forlan, and Rakoba. In Group B, Paraguay 2, South Africa 2, Spain 3, Slovenia 1, Raul Valeron and Hierro. Spain 3, Paraguay 1 in the next round. Two from Orientes, Hierro scores again. Both penalties that he's gotten, I should point out. Uh, Carlos Puyol scores an own goal. South Africa 1, Slovenia 0. South Africa 2, Spain 3. Raul gets two, Mendieta gets the other. Lucas Radeby and Benny McCarthy score for South Africa. Paraguay beat Slovenia 3-1. So Spain go through with nine points. Paraguay second, South Africa third. They're out. And Slovenia bottom and home with no points. Group C. Brazil 2, Turkey 1. Hassan Sass scores to put Turkey one up just before halftime. Ronaldo equalizes five minutes to the second half. And this is going to be a nil-nil draw. And then Brazil get a penalty. Oslin is sent off. And then Rivaldo gets Hakan Unsal sent off. The ball hits him in the leg. It's kicked at him. It hits him in the leg and he goes down holding his face. You've all seen it. You've all seen the the the, the gif of the ball hitting Rivaldo in the leg and him going down holding his face. Everyone's seen it. That's where it's from. Um, notable that Janinho started in midfield in this tournament next to Gilberto Silva. Brazil went super attacking. It didn't pay off for them. They couldn't quite get the balance right. They because We'll get to it. Do you know what? We'll get to it at the end. Uh, Costa Rica beat China 2-0. Brazil beat China 4-0. Roberto Carlos, Rivaldo, Ronaldinho and Ronaldo getting the goals. Costa Rica and Turkey drew 1-1. Brazil beat Costa Rica 5-2. Ronaldo got two. Edmilson scored. Rivaldo scored. And Junior scored. In the last game in the group then, Turkey 3 China nil, uh, Hassan Sass getting a goal in that one too. So Brazil threw nine points, Turkey with four, Costa Rica with four, and unfortunately eliminated, and China finish on no points. Group D, South Korea beat Poland 2-0. The USA beat Portugal 3-2. Pretty historic here. USA went 3-0 up. O'Brien, Costa, and McBride with the goals. Beto and Agus own goal. Gave Portugal some hope, but they couldn't find an equaliser. South Korea drew 1-1 with the USA. Portugal beat Poland 4-0. Paleta got a hat-trick. Rui Costa scored. And then in the last round, South Korea beat Portugal 1-0. I should point out there is one player in that South Korea team who I do remember. It's Park Ji-sung. Park Ji-sung. Uh, this is pre-Manchester United. Uh, Poland 3, the United States 1. USA did not look good in that game. I vividly have memories of Poland just running all over America for the first 15 minutes and the game been dead and buried. Um, South Korea top, United States second, Portugal third, and Poland fourth. Group E. Ireland won, Cameroon won. We went 1-0 down and Boma scored. Maddie Holland got the equaliser in the second half. And I believe that's the game where Eamon Dunphy turned up drunk. 
Uh, Germany beat Saudi Arabia 8-0. Miroslav Klose got a hat-trick. Michael Ballack scored. Bierhoff scored. Then Germany won. The Republic of Ireland won. Miroslav Klose opened the scoring. Robbie Keane with a heroic, heroic late goal grabbed a point for the Irish. Cameroon won. Saudi Arabia nil. Samuel Eto'o with the only goal. That made our draw with Cameroon seem like a dreadful result because they'd gotten pumped by the Germans. And then Germany 2, Cameroon nil. Ireland 3, Saudi Arabia nil. Uh, Robbie Keane, Gary Breen and Damien Duff with the goals. In Group F, Argentina won, Nigeria nil. Badastuta with the only goal. England won, Sweden won. Saul Campbell scored for England. Alexanderson equalised for Sweden. Sweden 2, Nigeria 1. Larson and... Larson got both goals. Henrik Larson and Agahawa scored the only goal for Nigeria. Argentina 0. England 1. A David Beckham penalty in the 44th minute. A really dull game. But I always remember... Two bits of commentary. As the players walked out, the commentator said, are you sitting comfortably? Neither am I. And when Beckham stepped up to take the penalty, he said something along the lines of, hold those cups of tea, or it could have been glasses or whatever. And when Beckham scored, he said, you can smash them now. So, yeah, that's that's it. The game itself is dull as anything. Uh, Sweden won. Argentina won. Svensson scored for Sweden. Crespo equalised for Argentina. Nigeria nil. England nil. So Sweden go through top with five points. England second with five points. Argentina third with four and out. And Nigeria bottom with one point. Group G. Croatia nil. Mexico won. Blanco with the only goal of the game. Blanco was a really fun left winger to watch. Uh, Italy 2, Ecuador 0. Christian Vieri with both goals. Italy 1, Croatia 2. Vieri scored again, but Olic and Rabic scored to give Croatia the win. Mexico 2, Ecuador 1. Borghetti and Torado scored for Mexico. Ecuador had gone one up through Delgado. Mexico won, Italy uh, Italy won. Borghetti scored early, well, scored first for Mexico. Del Piero scored late for the Italians. And then the shock of the group, because Italy were going out. Everybody thought Italy were going to go out because Mexico looked the better team going into the game. Even though the Italian squad is loaded, they'd been pretty disappointing in their first two games, especially losing to the to the Croatians. So they play Mexico, they draw 1-1. But at the same time, Ecuador play Croatia. And everybody thinks Croatia are going to win. Because Croatia are the better team. And Ecuador win 1-0. Mendes gets the only goal of the game. Croatia go out, Italy scrape through. And only go to Group H. Japan 2, Belgium 2. Suzuki and Inamoto with the goals for Japan. Russia 2, Tunisia 0. Japan 1... Russia nil, Inamoto scores. Tunisia won, Belgium won. Tunisia nil, Japan two. Marishima and Nakata with the goals. Belgium 
rescuing their tournament by beating the Russians 3-2. Belgium go through second place behind Japan, Russia and Tunisia go out. So there are our group stages. We will go on now to the knockout stages. And we have round of 16, quarterfinals, semifinals and final. First round of 16 game, Germany won, Paraguay nil. Oliver Nouvel with the only goal of the game. An incredibly tough game of football where both sides just didn't give an inch. There was very little in the way of bravery from either side in that game. It seemed from early on like they both wanted a penalty shootout. That's just what it seemed like. Two best players on the pitch are probably the two goalkeepers. Khan at one end, Chilliver at the other. Not in the game, just in general. Like, obviously, Michael Balak, you can make a strong case for. But remember I mentioned Lars Ricken should have been the star of the show, not even in the team. Didn't even come off the bench. Um, Denmark versus England. England three, Denmark nil. England go ahead through a Rio Ferdinand goal, which is just dreadful goalkeeping by Thomas Sorensen. Michael Owen makes it two. Really nicely worked goal. Really, really well worked goal. And then Emil Heskey makes it three just before half time. It's another defensive mistake, but it is what it is. England go through very, very comfortable at the Big Swan Stadium. The Big Swan Stadium. Like you're not getting that kind of name in Europe. Beautiful. Sweden won Senegal 2. Senegal's fairy tale story continues. Henrik Larsson put Sweden 1 up, but Henri Camera equalised in 37 minutes, and then Camera gets the golden goal on 104 minutes to send Senegal through. Spain won, Ireland won. Morientes scores for Spain. Ireland leave it really late again, and Robbie Keane scores a last-minute penalty. No goals in extra time. On to the penalty shootout, and Ireland just shit the bed. Robbie Keane scores. Hierro scores. Matt Holland misses. Baraka scores. Conley misses. Juan Fran misses. Kilban misses. Valeron misses. Finnan scores. We might be in with a chance here, but then Geiske Mendieta stepped up. And scored and through went Spain. And nothing will ever convince me that if Roy Keane is not playing in that midfield instead of Mark Kinsler, that Ireland don't beat Spain. Nothing will convince me that Ireland wouldn't have won that game if Roy Keane was playing. Anyway. Moving on. Mexico nil, the USA 2. This was an upset. This was a considerable upset. My man Rafa Marquez got himself sent off in the 88 minute, uh, having just lost that lost the head altogether. Brian McBride had scored for the United the US after eight minutes, and Landon Donovan doubled the lead on 66, and America cruised through. Brazil versus Belgium, Brazil two, Belgium nil. Rivaldo and Ronaldo, the dream pairing. The Brazil team is really strong, like it's really strong. Individually, the defenders have flaws. Though Lucio and Edmilson are both very, very good. The midfield four, Cafu and Carlos on the wings, 
Janino and Gilberto Silva in the middle. They're all individually great players. And then Ronaldinho and Rivaldo behind Ronaldo. It's just, that's unfair to people. Uh, moving on. Japan versus Turkey. So Japan's joy comes to an end as they get beaten 1-0 by the Turks. Davala scores the only goal of the game on 12 minutes. But then the controversy kicks in. South Korea versus Italy. Christian Vieri puts the Italians one up on 18 minutes. Now, this is an Italian team where Nesta is injured and Cannavaro is suspended. So it's worth just remembering that. Early in the game, South Korea get a penalty. Five minutes in, South Korea gets a penalty. It's really, really questionable whether it was a penalty or not. Really, really questionable. But Buffon saves the penalty anyway. Vieri scores with a header from a totty corner and they're 1-0 up. And then this game descends into a, a kicking match. And a couple of players have to go off because the South Koreans just start kicking the Italians. And the Italians say, well, if you're going to do it, we're going to do it. And they kick lumps out of each other. Two minutes left in the game, South Korea equalise. And it's questionable. It's questionable. But we go to extra time. And Francesco Totti is booked for diving. The referee is half the pitch away. And deems it a dive. And books him from half the pitch away. Then Tomasi scores to give Italy the golden goal win and it's ruled offside. It didn't look offside. And afterwards, FIFA admitted it wasn't offside. But in 117 minutes, South Korea get the golden goal and South Korea go through. And the Italians were undeniably stiffed by a really dodgy official. Who should be ashamed of himself. Quarterfinals. Brazil 2, England 1. Michael Owen opens the scoring. And England have a really good first half. Until David Beckham pulls out of a challenge. Brazil break. The ball finds Rivaldo. He scores 1-1 and it's half time. Five minutes of the second half, Brazil get a free kick 35 yards out on an angle. Ronaldinho clearly looks at David Seaman and thinks, I'm putting it over his head here. And I will always believe it was a shot. Seaman believes he mishit it. I think David Seaman made an enormous mistake with his positioning. Considering his age and his lack of agility at that point, it reminded me of Peter Shilton in 1990, which was a fluke, the Bremer free kick that hits Paul Parker's calf. But Shilton is three, four yards off his line when he shouldn't be, 
and doesn't have the agility to get back. If he's stood on his line, he catches it easily. Like with this one, if Seaman is stood on his line, he catches it easily, but he doesn't. He stands three to four yards off his line because he thinks it's going to be a cross. And Ronaldinho just thinks, okay, I'll just put it in there. Ronaldinho would be sent off seven minutes later. And England, despite having a, a man advantage for 33 minutes plus stoppage time, can't find an equaliser. Disappointing end to England's World Cup because they were starting to show some promise and team was taking decent shape, but wasn't to be. And Brazil go through. Now, Brazil at this point have made a change in their midfield. And Cleberson has come in for, for Janinho and they've gone more defensive. Uh, Germany won the United States nil. Michael Ballack with the only goal of the game on 39 minutes in the US dream of World Cup success is over. Then we get more controversy. It is Spain versus South Korea. It's a dull as dishwater type of game. But in the second half, Ruben Baraka scores a perfectly legitimate header and the referee disallows it for shirt pulling and pushing, which happens at every single corner and set piece you've ever seen. There's nothing wrong with that goal. It should have been given. In the first half of extra time, Fernando Morientes scores to give Spain the golden goal victory. And the referee disallows it because the linesman's got his flag up in the air because he thought the ball had gone out of play, which it hadn't. Game went to penalties. And to be fair, South Korea held their nerve and the Spaniards didn't. And South Korea went through 5-3 on penalties. In the final quarterfinal then, Senegal won, Senegal nil. Turkey won. Ilhan scored the only goal in extra time, a golden goal winner on 94 minutes. And Senegal, who had really shocked everybody by A, beating France, and B, getting this far, their World Cup was over. The semifinals gave us Germany versus South Korea and Brazil versus Turkey. I'd imagine the odds you'd have gotten on Germany versus South Korea, considering South Korea were in that bracket with Italy and Spain. I'd imagine those those odds were ferocious. Um, and this is what I mean by a missed opportunity for England, because if England had gotten by Brazil, I think they win this World Cup. It's not the most talented English squad ever. It's a good squad, but it's not the most talented English squad ever. But they would have beaten Turkey, and I think they'd have beaten the Germans in the final especially because in Germany 1, South Korea 0, Michael Balak gets booked on 71 before scoring the only goal of the game on 75. And that yellow card means Michael Balak misses the European the, the World Cup final. And Michael Balak had been through a hell of a year with Leverkusen the year before, losing a Champions League final, finishing second in the league and losing a domestic cup final. And now here he is having to miss a World Cup final. He was Germany's best player through the tournament. Certainly with Oliver Kahn, the best player in the squad. 
And it just, it was, it was really tough, but huge, huge performance in that semi-final to drag Germany over the line. Uh, in the other semi-final, Ronaldo scored the only goal of the game as Brazil beat Turkey 1-0. In the third and fourth place playoffs, the Turks beat South Korea 3-2. Hakan Sucre scored on one minute. South Korea equalized on nine. Ilhan put, put Turkey 1-2 ahead on 13. They went 3-1 ahead on 32. South Korea got a late, late goal as a consolation, but it was to end with nothing. They would finish fourth, Turkey in second, and on to the final we go. The German team, Oliver Kahn in goal, Thomas Linke, Karsten Ramelow, and Christoph Metzelder as centre-backs. Torsten Frings, Didi, Hamans, Didi Hamann, Jens Jeremies, and Marco Boda as a midfield four. Bernd Schneider behind a front two of Oliver Neuvel and Miroslav Klose. Not exactly a who's who of German players. Uh, for Brazil, Marcos is in goal. Um, Marcos was pushing 40. Was he pushing 40? Was he pushing 30? He was, he's a legend at Palmieri's. Uh, never, never left. Had opportunities galore, never left. Back three, you've got Lucio, Edmilson, and Rocky Jr. All Lucio was very good, but had flaws. Ed Nielsen was very good, but had flaws. Rocky Jr. was just okay. Uh, in midfield, you've got Cafu, Gilberto Silva, Cleberson, and Roberto Carlos. Again, they've gone with the more defensive option there of Cleberson over Janinho. You've got Ronaldinho behind Rivaldo and Ronaldo. Ronaldinho had missed the Turkey game through suspension, having been sent off against England, but was back for the final a fairly a fairly tough final like tough to watch germany had clearly set their stall out that they were going to try and grind it out and either nick a 1-0 in regulation or try and get it to extra time and then try and win by either golden goal or penalty shootout they knew they couldn't match brazil man for man they knew they couldn't outplay them or match them in an open game so they just tried to stop them. And to be fair, the Germans performed well. The first half was pretty even. In the second half, on 67 minutes, Ronaldo scores to make it 1-0. And then on 79, he wraps it up. 2-0 to Brazil. Germany had more of the ball in the game. Because once Brazil got the first goal, Brazil were like, okay, well, now you come and try and beat us. Now you have to open up and we're going to destroy you on the counterattack. The problem for the Germans is that they didn't really open up. They had some long-range shots. They didn't really create much of anything. Like, I watched that final a few years ago and I don't remember Marcos making a save where I thought, oh, that's a big, big save. Like, there's nothing where... It wasn't comfortable for him. Ronaldo was voted man of the match, as expected, having scored two goals to win the World Cup. And Brazil lifted the tournament, lifted the, the trophy for the fifth time in their history. And to date, the last time in their history. Um, Ronaldo won the golden boot with eight goals. Rivaldo and Miroslav Klose both got five. John Dahl Thomason and Christian Vieri got four. 
Wilmot, Balak, Keane, Paletta, Morientes, Raul, Papa Bubba Diop, Henrik Larsson, and Ilhan got three. Ronaldinho, Gomez, Owen, Inamoto, Borghetti, Quavez, Camara, Young Juan, Hierro, Davala, Sass, Donovan, and McBride all got two, and then a whole stream of people got one. There were also a few own goals scored. Uh, we had a lot of yellow cards in this tournament. We had 4.25 yellow cards per game for 272 total. There were 17 red cards given out in the competition. The shortest time between two red cards, two yellow cards, or they've been given to the same player, it was Carson Ramelo against Cameroon. Um, yeah. Not a great World Cup. The quality of football wasn't great. I don't know how well the teams adapted to being over there. It wasn't a great watch because the time just made it a tough watch. You missed a lot of games at the time. You had to go back and watch them later on. And you you already knew the score, so it wasn't wasn't the same. Uh to tell you how how poor this tournament was, the, the golden ball for best player at this tournament went to Oliver Kahn, a goalkeeper. And not even the winning goalkeeper. Uh Ronaldo got the golden boot. Oliver Kahn also got the Yashin Award for best goalkeeper. <clears throat> Landon Donovan was best young player. Belgium won the fair play trophy, which is the most overly meaningless thing in the world. And the most entertaining team went to South Korea, which is just farcical. It's just farcical. Because the football they played in their last, in three of the last four games was horrendous to watch. Absolutely horrendous against Germany. Awful to watch against Spain. Awful to watch against the Italians. When were they entertaining? In the third and fourth place playoff? Was that when they were meant to be entertaining? Because they lost that game. So surely the team that won that game was more entertaining than them. Now you can argue in the groups, but a 2-0, a 1-1 and a 1-0, that's entertaining. South Korea weren't entertaining at all. Gus Hiddings' teams were never entertaining. By their very nature, they couldn't be entertaining. Uh, in terms of the all-star squad then, Oliver Kahn and Rusty Rekbar, the two goalkeepers, Saul Campbell, Fernando Hierro, Hong Mung Bo of South Korea, uh, Ozilan and Roberto Carlos were the defenders. No Cafu, who I thought had a really strong tournament. Midfielders, Balak, Balak was probably the second best player in the entire tournament, third best player in the entire tournament after Khan and Ronaldo. Uh, Reina, Claudio Reina, Rivaldo, Ronaldinho, and Yusong Chul. And the Fords were Elhaj Juff, Miroslav Klose, Ronaldo, and Hassan Sass. Yeah, pretty decent. Pretty decent. Can't really complain too much about that. Um, It was great that the World Cup went to Asia. It was. It was great. And it brought a new audience to the game in many ways. But at the same time, I'm just... It's not a good World Cup in terms of the standard. And this is where the World Cup standard started to drop. Now, 06 is a strong World Cup. 
But everything since has been garbage in terms of the quality. Everything since has been awful. Now, part of it is that when the World Cups were really strong up until, you know, like 94, 2014s, 98 had 32 teams and the quality did suffer, though that was a good World Cup. This was not a good World Cup. This was not a good World Cup at all. It was the first tournament, major tournament to be held between two countries. And like I said earlier, I will give the Japanese and South Koreans credit. They put on a great World Cup. The football just didn't live up to it. Football just didn't live up to it. And with that, we'll go to break. Uh, This has been long, very long. Uh, We'll just come back. We'll do a quick bit of news and the gossip. So see you after this. Right, welcome back. So the Premier League have announced that they are pushing for a 12-point deduction. Well, I haven't really announced it. It's been leaked. It's been reported. The Premier League are pushing for a 12-point deduction for Everton Football Club. Everton Football Club facing the possibility that nine games into the Premier League season, a season in which they have been pretty crap to begin, they could be on minus five points. That will put them six points behind Sheffield United, nine behind Bournemouth, eight behind Bournemouth, eight behind Bournemouth, nine behind Burnley, and ten behind Luton. And it would really cut that group adrift of everybody else because it's five points from Luton to Nottingham Forest and Brentford. It's a real possibility now that this is what's going to happen to Everton for them breaking the FFP rules and the PNS rules. It should have happened last season. This should have been resolved last season. Everton would have been relegated. Doing it now gives them a fairer shot at staying up. But other clubs were not given that fairer shot. Like Reading last season weren't given that fairer shot. I can only imagine the meltdown from the Blues. I can only imagine the meltdown from the Blues. But I've said before... The best thing that could happen to Everton Football Club might be to go down and reset the club and reset the culture of the club and try and build something real and come back up. Uh, There's a really cool story on the BBC website about Tosin Ev Ev Bormann. I've definitely pronounced that wrong. Ev Bormann, I think, is is right, but I'm probably wrong. Um who is an NBA player for the Detroit Pistons, who was once in the Newcastle Academy before deciding at a young age that he didn't really enjoy football all that much. His dad had been a professional basketball player. He'd never really been all that into basketball, but used to play with his dad. And then he just started playing with his mates, started playing with a team, ended up getting a scholarship to attend Princeton, where he played for four years, well, played for three years. One of the years, there was no games played because of COVID. He decided to enter the NBA draft after his senior year, despite the fact he did have 
one year of eligibility left because of the season that had been cancelled. He went undrafted and the Pistons signed him to a two-way contract as an undrafted free agent. Um, he has played a little bit in preseason. He is a 6'7", small forward. His best path to an NBA career is to focus on defense and being able to shoot the three because he's not going to get a whole lot of anything else. Defense and shooting the three, that's how you carve out a career for yourself. I wish him all the best. It's always cool seeing someone from this side of the pond, even if it's the wrong side of the Irish Channel, uh, doing well in the NBA. It's always cool. So best of luck to him. The story is quite cool, though. Uh, Written by Nesta McGregor. I do recommend giving that a read. Let's just do the gossip and get ourselves home for today. Newcastle could reignite their interest in Calvin Phillips if they decide to bring in short-term cover for Sandro Tonali. It looks like Tonali is going to get a 10-month ban. So that's just this season, really. He'll be back by next... He'll be back with the start of next season or, or shortly into next season. You might miss the first few games. Uh, other meet midfielders on Newcastle's radar include, in radar include Scott McTominay, Amadou Onana and Joe Polinia. Now, Amadou Onana would be an unbelievable get. Him with Gamerish would be terrifying. That might be the best d- double pivot in the league if they could put that together. Uh, Chelsea are ready to test Arsenal's resolve over David. Oh, sorry, over Aaron Ramsdale. I don't believe that. <laughs> that would be funny though. Arsenal, Liverpool, and Tottenham are interested in Nico Williams. Uh, Jamal Musiala, yada yada. Man City, Bayern, uh, Real Madrid. I just don't believe the story, to be honest. Manchester United have abandoned proposed big money moves for Goncalo Inacio and Jean-Claire Tadiba. Tadibo. I, I don't know that they had big money moves in place for either of those players. I, I doubt that they do. I, I don't see why they would want Inacio. Um, he's better than, than the Gnome, but they spend a lot of money on the Gnome and the manager loves the Gnome. So Tadibo is really good, though. Uh, he'd be a really good fit for them. Uh, Jaden Sancho may be allowed to leave on a long-term loan, so probably 18 months in January. Uh, Sky Sports Germany are saying that Dortmund is unlikely and it could be Juve where he ends up. Fulham want to, start, want to sign Stuttgart's Ghanaian forward Serhu Garassi, who has scored 14 times in the Bundesliga this season, including two hat-tricks. Um, I'd always be a little bit cautious of signing someone who's 27 and displaying a level of form that doesn't fit with the rest of their career. Like, this season in all competitions, he's got 15 goals through nine games. Prior to this season, he'd never scored more than 14 goals in a season. He is a good player. He was good for Wren, and he's been really good for Stuttgart since joining them. Had a really good season last year. It was 14 and 28 was last season. But he's, he'd never scored that type of at that type of level before. So I'm not I'm not sure. I'm not sure if I'd be spending Oh, well, to be fair, his release clause is just over 15 million. So that's a gamble worth taking. Uh, Juventus are planning a loan offer for Pierre-Emile Hoysberg. 
Manchester United assistant manager Mitchell van der Gag is expected to stay at the club despite the managerial vacancy at Ajax. Marco Silva received assurances he will be able to spend significantly in the transfer market. Interesting. Aston Villa are tracking Sporting Lisbon's Mozambique winger Jenny Catamo. Um, he's certainly talented. I, I, I don't know. Like he hasn't shown a whole lot yet. There's other players at, at Sporting that I think will be better buys, but you know, it, it maybe, maybe. Aston Villa and West Ham have been told by Real Madrid they must pay just under eighteen million pounds if they want to sign Brahim Diaz. Remember when? Remember when they signed Brahim Diaz for Man City and paid silly money for him, and he wasn't good enough. And then they loaned him out to AC Milan, and he showed flashes but wasn't really good enough. And then they brought him back and said he was going to be a big part of the future. And now they're going to sell him for under eighteen million. Sunderland are keen to tie Jack Clark down to a new contract and ward off interest from Burnley. Burnley need to stop buying wingers. They just need to stop buying wingers. That's the simple fact of it. Um, And that's it. That's the gossip. Last little bit. There's been some really good tributes paid to Bill Kenwright. And there's been some wonderful tributes paid to Bobby Charlton. And football should be in mourning because we lost two big figures. Um, Bill Kenwright didn't do everything right at Everton. But he did what he thought was right for Everton. If all owners and decision makers at clubs cared as much about their club as Bill Kenwright cared about Everton, football will be a much better place. And I'll never forget what a champion of the Hillsborough Justice campaign he was and how supportive he was of the families of the victims of the Hillsborough tragedy. So Bill Kenroy was good in my book. And I'll see you tomorrow. Take care of yourselves. Bye-bye. Podcast Network.